All right, you may be seated. Our scripture today is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, and we'll be reading from 1 through 10. And this is the common English translation. At one time, you were like a dead person because of the things you did wrong and your offenses against God. You used to live like the people of this world. You followed the rule of a destructive spiritual power. This is the spirit of disobedience to God's will that is now at work in persons whose lives are characterized by disobedience. At one time, you were like those persons. All of you used to do whatever felt good and whatever you thought you wanted so that you were children headed for punishment just like everyone else. However, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead as a result of those things that we did wrong. He did this because of the great love that he has for us. You are saved by God's grace. And God raised us up and seated us in the heavens with Christ Jesus. God did this to show future generations the greatness of his grace by the goodness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It's not something you possessed. It's not something that you did that you can be proud of. Instead, we are God's accomplishment, created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good morning. I'm Jeannie Whitehurst, a retired pastor um, associated with this congregation. Pastor Laura is at uh, Princeton University, being selected, has been selected from thousands of Methodist pastors to be among eight that is doing a special project uh, on preaching at the university. So she is there this week for that, and uh, she covets your prayers as she uh, works with those outstanding uh, professors. I would invite you also to pray for all of those around the world who are dealing with tragedy, for those that have lost loved ones in the crash in the Ukraine, for those that are struggling with uh, death and for life issues that are just overpowering. Hold those in your prayers as you would also hold uh, the thousands and thousands of children that are caught in the legal turmoil. Help us understand that they're God's children and that as we as Christians are called to love and cherish, to feed and to clothe while the humanity, the sin of our world gets straightened out so others can know of a life that is yet to be. I just returned from a short trip to Mississippi to see my 90-year-old uncle and aunt. My aunt, Maisel, is in fabulous health at 89, but her brain is gone. Uncle Tom, who's the namesake for my younger son, has got the sharpest mind ever, but his body's failing. You know, it just takes a lot of courage to grow old, and nobody really tells you about that as you're a teenager. I admire these two people for many reasons, but as I was traveling, I, reminded, I was reminded that uh, my sister and I would travel with mom and dad, leaving at 2 in the morning. They'd put us in the back of the car so that we wouldn't ask, are we there yet, for 12 solid hours. Now it only takes six hours to get there. Wonderful freeways. 
and I would run into, uh, we'd get up to Ma and Pa Brown's house, we'd jump out of the car, liberated at last, run up those steps, pull open that screen door, run down that dog trot hall to the back of the kitchen where Ma and Pa would be waiting. For they had been cooking since sunup all of the fruits and vegetables and the meats that they grew. Uh, the house smelt wonderful. They couldn't give us enough hugs and kisses. We knew we were home. And it happened to be Homewood, Mississippi. Ma and Pa were what I called family. They defined what it meant to be a brown. Oh, I'm a Mackay too, but my brown roots, I'm German all the way, as my friends and husband would say. I am stubborn. I like to control my own life, right, Meg? And I really do enjoy being the outer, in the out of doors, and farming is just a part of who I am, even though I was raised in Houston. So being in the tall pines of Mississippi, breathing in that breath of that pine scent, and remembering the wonderful food, I was reminded what it meant to be loved unconditionally, what it meant to have everything ready for me, perfect condition. The beds were made. I mean, they were poor farmers, guys. They had the only indoor toilet for miles around. So for everything to be perfect, it was clean. They were so happy to have us. We knew we were cherished and that we had been expected. Well, that is what God's love is like. Even though my family is not perfect by any means, I love them. They love me. But it is only a scratch of a symbol of what God's love is like. Because God loves in such a way that I will never understand completely. But if God can love me so unconditionally that I am welcomed, then I'm going to be God's child. I'm not only a brown and a Makahe, I am also God's child. The child of God that has a special name that's called by, I'm called by name every time I go to God in prayer. I'm anticipated, I've been expected, I'm prepared for, and I have everything ready for you, God says. All right, that's grace. But we, as humans, don't really understand that it's a free gift. It's given to us by God with no strings attached. We haven't done anything to earn it. Just like I didn't earn anything to be called a brown. I just was. From the minute I was conceived, I was God's child and I was a brown. God has been wanting a relationship with me from that very conception on. That gift is unmerited, and I'm definitely unworthy of it. Yet it's given. The most precious gift you can ever receive. But we as Protestants have three words that we like to use to explain 
the different ways that grace is known. We Methodists have a word that's really kind of a unique word. It's a Latin word. Uh, comes from a Latin word, which I can't say. But it's called prevenient, going before. It's the grace that God extends to each of us before we are even aware of God's presence in our lives. It says we are looking at the church and we notice that there is a sidewalk. We'll get to the picture that has the sidewalk on it, please. Has a sidewalk that's coming up to the door of the church. Well, that sidewalk has been joined by thousands and millions of other sidewalks that we have traveled throughout our lives. They converge into the sidewalk leading into God's house. And we have been walking this very journey of life, living the life that we have chosen, that we've made the decisions for, yet we've not been alone on this walk. God has been there with us, whether we are aware of it or not. It is as if we can uh, go about life taking a, a journey this way and then taking another path when it comes to a fork, but God's going to be with us no matter where we diverge. But God is going to be nudging us toward a relationship no matter what path we choose. It will always lead us back to God. For it is God that's directing us. That's prevenient grace. The second word that we use is justifying grace. It's that grace that we accept that justifies us, makes us right with God. If you remember the old computer printer, the print was justified on the margins. You can still do that if you know how to work a computer printer. But... It's justified, you're made right with God. It is literally our willingness to say, God, I want to knock on your door because I want to know you. I want a relationship with you. It is our willingness to say yes to that presence of God that's been with us all along. That Justifying grace lets us go in through the doors. God literally opens the door for us. Just as the ushers and the greeters open the door for you when you come into this God's house. You are welcomed. You've been anticipated. We're happy you're here. We've made everything ready for you. Somebody has come in and cleaned. Somebody has paid the bills so we can have lights. Others have come and sung and lead us. We're ready. We're glad you're here. The door has been wide, wide open and welcoming you in. And then the third word is sanctifying grace. It's when you've entered God's house, God's church, and you not only sit in the pew and learn about God and experience, Discover all the different facets of what it means to love God and to be loved by God. We learn to pray. We learn to worship. We study the scriptures. We get involved. We move from the pew to the kitchen. We 
learn what it means to be active in God's world and in God's house. I understand that in my grandmother's house, I couldn't go and help her cook as a guest. But as a child of the family, I had responsibilities. I was required to help set the table, to chop the vegetables, to get things ready. I had responsibilities in the Brown house. And in God's house, we also have responsibilities. We have responsibilities to share the love of God with each other as the family of faith and to also to witness it to others. And sometimes it takes more than just sitting in a pew and worshiping. It takes preparing meals. It takes teaching Sunday school. It takes paying the bills so that we can have lights and Sunday school curriculum and musicians. It takes effort and action. Yes, grace is God's action, but it's really about a relationship, and every relationship requires action from both parties. So our response to God's gifts of love is acting in love throughout the world. I was recently told by one of our church members that uh, when she first came to the church, she was a pew-sitter. She was not actively involved. And she uh, came troubled because her marriage was falling apart. And her friends and neighbors were there for her during that troubling time. They'd pray and they'd commiserate and they'd ask what they could do to help take care of the two children who were angry and frustrated and hurt. She didn't find any comfort in all of that because it was too traumatic, too heart-wrenching. She could not figure out how to be able to get a job and pay the bills and balance being a mother and a worker and take care of a house that was falling apart because there was no one there to take care of the daily maintenance. Her friends, who are active in this church, got together and came on a Saturday, ended up with a whole bunch of them, and they ended up painting the inside of the house and the outside and repairing the, the leaky faucets and doing some other electrical minor repairs and getting the house so that it could be easily maintained. She was amazed that anyone would do that, especially those that had never heard of her, never, didn't know her. They had just come because they were a part of the body of faith, Big Creek Church. She said, I, it was at that point that I realized that God had been with me throughout all the trauma of my life and that my friends had been giving me God's grace and love and nurturing but I hadn't found comfort in it because I wasn't open to it. She said it wasn't until the group came and they gave so freely of themselves and even paid for the paint that I realized that they were doing something that I hadn't asked for, didn't deserve, and sure was a wonderful gift. She said, I began to go to church in the understanding that 
for the first time in my life that God had been there and I hadn't been aware. And it was at that point that I decided that if all of these folks knew of a God that would motivate them and energize them and help them want to do for me, that I wanted to have what they had. So I joined the church. That was the first step, she said. I didn't know what that was going to mean. All I knew was that I was knocking on God's door and saying, I want in. And the door was flung open, but it had been open the whole time. She had just not noticed. But when she walked in, she was so welcomed, not looked down upon, not felt sorry for, not pitied, but loved, accepted, welcomed, joyously. I didn't ever have that in my life. Nobody had ever loved me like that. I couldn't just sit in the pews anymore. That wasn't enough. I used to come and sit and just, hit me, God. I know you're here. Hit me. That didn't work. I began to open up my mind and my heart and started hearing and seeing and witnessing and really looking around. And it wasn't just, it wasn't enough anymore just to sit in the pew. I wanted to know more about God. So she got into a disciple Bible class. She started uh, working with some of the women and her friends in her neighborhood to do little projects here and there. And then they started having lots of fun. And it multiplied, went into a prayer group. Her children started getting involved in the children's program. She said, our life was transformed. We were no longer stuck in drama. We were living with joy and hope and a new purpose. That's God's grace. Have you known it? I'm going to challenge you. I want to ask you, on the back of your paper that's a study guide, I want you to draw a line from birth to the present age. And at home, mark down every little incident in your life, or major incident, that happened. Maybe it was the death of a child. Maybe it was the death of a parent. Maybe it was a divorce. Maybe it was not getting the job that you thought you were so ready for. Could have been a good experience. It could have been that you got accepted into the choice internship. Whatever the event, write down just one or two descriptive words. Then ask yourself these questions. Was God there? And if God was in those events, how was God made known? Did you notice at the time of the event? If not, what have you learned now, looking back, about God's presence in your life? 
you'll be surprised. I think you'll be surprised that God has been with you in that prevenient, that grace that's been with you all through your life where you weren't aware, and that God led you to the door of God's house for that promised and hoped-for relationship, and that God has been nurturing you and caring for you even after, especially after, you've accepted God's gift. Now, I want you to know that we who, uh, who call ourselves Christians are not perfect. We don't claim to be. In fact, I understand the, the church is a place for Band-Aids to be distributed, and that's not enough. Healing of the hurts under the, under the Band-Aids can only come when we are open to God's love and grace. When we have said yes to God, but we have also said, I'm willing to change my life. I'm going to turn away from the path that led me away from God, and I'm going to turn toward God. And I'm going to allow God to direct my life. I'm going to let go of all of my need to control, all of my need to have my will done, and let God work in such a way that God's will will be known. Now, I want us to understand that grace given by God is not a cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the Lutheran theologians from World War II, defined cheap grace for us, and I quote, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Oh, that means, ah, that's okay. I did it wrong, but no big deal. I hurt somebody's feelings, but eh, that's all right. Nope. That self-imposed grace is cheap. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, the living and incarnate Christ in our lives. God's sanctifying grace is a perfecting grace, helping us be better tomorrow than we are today and better today than we were yesterday. We can't do that on our own. We need God's grace. God's grace transforms, totally changes our lives. I was 48 years old before I finally accepted the call to ministry that I'd gotten at the age of 12 because I was a woman, I was stupid, I was short, I was a wife and mom, I couldn't be a pastor. I had every excuse in the world, but God kept pursuing and leading to the point where I finally let go and said, okay, God, I give up. Life was so transformed at that moment. No way.
way would I have ever admitted that I would be able to preach or that it was the role of a woman to be a pastor. I grew up in a chauvinistic pastor's home. No way would I say that I was worthy. No way do you think you're worthy, do you? Yet God says you are. God says that I have given you gifts, each one of you. I need your gift to be able to do my will, God is saying. And if you just sit in that pew, I'll be patient. I'll use my gifts that somebody else is willing to give, but I'm not going to give up on you. God will continue to work in our lives until we're ready to say yes. I'm not perfect. You aren't perfect. I consider myself a Christian that's working toward perfection. I will never get there. But I am endeavoring to follow Jesus Christ's teachings and lessons in such a way that I can eventually be the person God has called me to be. Oh, I'll slip up. I may have a cuss word or two. I may do something that hurts some others, but I've also learned that when I go to God and say, please forgive me, that I'm forgiven. For it was Christ that died on that cross that took all of my sin. It was God's gift to us that allows me to know that I'm loved so much that he gave his son so that I might have life without guilt and shame. That I might have life that is abundant beyond my expectations. That I might have a life that's transformed in such a way that I can never imagine. That's the mystery of faith. I don't know how it's going to happen. I just know from life experiences that I couldn't be who I am without God. And I will not be who I intend to be without God. For it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that works in and through me and you that helps us to know that we are loved in such a way that we're claimed by name and said we are children of God. I'd invite you to look on that timeline and find out when it was that you were given that name, child of God. Because it's there. Say yes once again to God. Let go of your need to control and let God's will work in your life. Amen.